0: cypher podcast i'm pleased today to have richard baitlick as my guest uh, richard is a longtime security uh, consultant and professional if you've been in the industry for uh, more than a half an hour you've certainly uh, come in contact with some of his work his writing he's done uh, a lot of very influential books uh, done a lot of speaking worked all over the place so um, richard thanks very much for joining me
1: thank you dennis i appreciate the opportunity
0: Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, you've had a very long and very varied career and I definitely want to get into some of that. Um, but uh so you've been kind of doing some con- consulting and advising stuff lately, but um now you're you're joining Corelight this week and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, what what led you to to get interested in in them and what you're hoping to accomplish uh while you're there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a really exciting opportunity. I, I started July 20th. Uh, actually, no, I didn't start July 20th. I started uh, at the end of July. Um, and No, actually, I did start July 20th. No, I started. I finished my previous job July 20th. I started August 20th. Okay. All of these dates have the 20th in them, so I've been having <laughs> trouble keeping track of what started when. But yeah, I started at CoreLite August 20th. But we had to be quiet for a few weeks. Um, they... Trying to time it with some other activities that are becoming public, product releases, and so forth. So I've been in stealth mode with Corelight, um, meeting the team, getting up to speed, uh, figuring out how I can best contribute, and I'm just really happy to be here. It, Corelight is the company that uh, employs all the programmers who work on on Bro, uh, at least the you know the core team uh, of Bro. Uh, there's plenty of people who work on policy scripts and other aspects of the open source project, but uh, I see Corelight as the is the premier network security monitoring company, and uh, many people on, on the team are people that I've looked up to for years as as mentors even, and so the the, the opportunity to to join the company uh, when it when it presented itself, uh, I just uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, I had a couple other options as well, but at the end of the day, I think Corelight was the best
0: fit. Yeah, it's an interesting company. I'm always kind of fascinated by uh, these private companies that come out of these open source projects, or you know, something along those lines. You know, the one I can think of obviously is Sourcefire um, with Snort and Corelight fits into that as well. There's been some other security companies like that, um, and how they actually turn that into you know a functioning company is an interesting journey. And I know you're coming on kind of after that, but. Um, what do you, what specifically, what kind of stuff do you think you're going to be working on uh, while you're there?
1: Well, thus far, I've been doing a lot with many different parts of the company. So I work with their product team, taking a look at what we're building, um, what customers need, what, uh, different ways we can use the software, develop the software, how we can present it to customers. Uh, I've been on customer calls, so finding out what customers need, helping them understand the solution. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a wide range of customers that are out there as far as their approach to security and their environment. So I try to bring my experience as both a provider and a consumer uh, over the years to that. Um, and I'm, I'm part of the leadership team, so I like the ability to help steer uh, where we go in the future.
0: Yeah, and as, as you mentioned, there's some... Uh, the leadership team there is pretty impressive. You just, they have Vern Paxson, who's a well-known, very intelligent guy. Um, it, it looks like a pretty impressive team. So um, the interesting thing to me kind of about some of these uh, security companies, you know, Corelight, some of the others that do kind of the, what I kind of think of as like the the background type of security, like network monitoring is something obviously everyone needs, everyone has. But it doesn't get, you know, a lot of, there aren't people writing a lot about network monitoring. You know, they're writing about APTs and, uh, you know, custom malware and data breaches and all that kind of stuff. But that kind of sits at that layer of stuff that everybody knows that they need to have and, um, you know, doesn't always think about all the time these days, I would guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. I I think um, everybody needs it. Not everybody has it. Some people think they have it and they don't. Um,
0: <laughs> That's a bad situation yeah. to be in.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, th- there's, a, there's a natural tendency to think if you are very good at finding uh, bad activity or identifying bad activity on the network, then you should just lead naturally to a prevention solution, mm-hmm. which I think is true. If, if you divide security on the network into two big buckets, you've got uh, everything you can stop because you can so crisply define it in policy. You can instantiate that in, a code, in code somehow, and you can make a control decision and say, this should not be happening. We're going to stop it. However, that, is, that tends to be uh, a fairly narrow set of activities, or it can only be done at certain levels of the OSI model. Like You can very clearly say, we only want activity involving these IP addresses or these services over these ports and uh, limited by our ability to ver- validate that that protocol is actually running on the ports and protocols that we've identified. Everything else outside of that, you have to take more of a visibility approach because you can't so well define the activity. And that's where I think a lot of people run into trouble is that they don't spend enough time on the visibility aspects. Now, one of the approaches to visibility is to say, we're going to provide you some type of alert when we see something that is suspicious or we think is malicious. And that's good as well. But there's so much more activity that at the time that it occurs you can't say that it's suspicious or malicious or you don't have enough confidence to to generate alerts or you're in the situation where people do say well who cares about confidence we're just going to generate the alerts anyway and let somebody else deal with them you know (laughs) dump them in the sim have the mssp take care of them and so forth yeah so corelight we we fit in that visibility category We're, we're trying to keep track of what's happening on your network um we're we're giving you the information that you need sort of in a sweet spot, it's not as much as PCAP, which, which while it's a lot easier these days to collect, it's much more difficult to work with unless you know exactly what you're looking for. And it's not an alert such that, uh, you know, the alert is someone's judgment about what uh, they think is bad happening in the network. We sort of sit in the middle. And that's what, if I were to be trapped, you know, on, on one, Uh, on a desert island with one form of nsm data it would be bro data there's there's really nothing that that compares as far as the quality of that data
0: so who does the what does the customer set look like for the most part is it is it mainly enterprises do you have some mssps mixed in there as well
1: well it depends uh who you who you mean uh as the provider so if you're looking at at corelight we have many customers who are established bro shops uh, and they have decided that, for for many reasons, they want to transition to uh, something that's commercially supported. And we, we've had customers who, for example, have have spent weeks or months troubleshooting some some edge case with Bro or trying to get the performance that they need on on their uh, their own deployment. And they just realize that uh, their money is better spent on something that we've optimized down to to the hardware level. So that's one side of it. Um, But then there are are other customers who are are new to NSM, they're new to uh, Bro, they're new to that form of data, and uh, we have to spend a decent amount of time um, explaining the value of that approach, and uh, how not only does it help you with security in terms of its own offering, but uh, the sort of informal saying that it, bro makes everything better. Um, if you have, for example, a huge PCAP deployment, how do you know where to look in that? Uh, well, bro logs are essentially a wonderful index into PCAP data. Or if you have a bunch of IDS alerts or IPS alerts or firewall blocks or whatever it is, um, how do you know what, like which of those you should pay attention to or how do you investigate those? Well, bro logs are a great place to go for that next level of, of analysis. Um, there, there's so many use cases that, that we have that I've just accumulated over the course of doing consulting and then enterprise defense on my own. Um, that uh, it, once I start to explain how this works, and, and, and our, our people are pretty good at, at doing that, um, we start to get a lot of people understanding why this is something that, that I think everybody needs. Every, every place there's a network needs this type of, of uh, light and Bro data.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, that, that with the volume of activity that's going on on, you know, a network of any you know reasonable size these days, I can't imagine that you want to run something like that without some level of network monitoring like this. It just seems like un, untenable.
1: Yeah, well, so I've always said that there's four ways to find out what's happening in your environment, uh, ranked from least intrusive to most intrusive um, the, the least intrusive way, but also probably the, the least preferred way is to have somebody else tell you. So the FBI's program for, for intrusion notifications are going on for about 12 years. Um, it, that's a great way to find out what's happening, but it's typically, <laughs> you know, it could take a few weeks. Um, it's not very granular. It's just sort of a tip and so forth. The second place uh, or the second way to find out what's happening is to use the network. You can instrument the network with a, a passive network tap. You can use a span port. Um, you can, uh, there's, there's ways to get access to the network traffic that once you have that access, nobody needs to know about it. You're not impacting throughput. You're not impacting the services that are provided and you're, you're getting a very rich set of data about what's going on. And in some ways, um, it's data that you can't get any other way. You know, the, the last two ways that I'd mention are getting logs from devices or infrastructure or finally putting an agent on a computing device. There's many, many systems these days. You just can't get logs from them, um, they're just not architected that way, particularly in the consumer space or in the IoT space. Yep. Uh, and the same is true of, of endpoints. Like you can get very rich data if you have an EDR agent installed. Um, but if you don't have that thing, you know, if it's a legacy IT or if it's something that's unsupported or if it's rogue IT or it's OT uh, and so forth, that's not an option. So at the end of the day, the least common denominator among everything that's on the internet is the fact that it's on the internet. So why not instrument uh, where you can and capture that data in a format that's that's very useful, not not just for security but for troubleshooting and all sorts of other reasons.
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. Yeah, and you mentioned IoT. How, how much does that uh, kind of add complexity for network monitoring? I mean, it's not as much an enterprise issue probably yet as it is a consumer issue, but. Um, You know, all of these random uh, smart slash dumb devices that are getting added to networks these days, you know, kind of ad hoc. How much more difficult does that make the network monitoring piece?
1: Well, there's a there's a mixed picture there. In some ways, it's it's reminds me of the the 90s where you didn't have as many uh, encrypted protocols being used. So you could you have a better look into what some of these devices are doing. From another security perspective, that's really scary. That opens up a lot of uh, threat vectors there. There's a lot of exposures when you're using unencrypted protocols. But from the monitoring perspective, it makes it a lot easier to see what's happening. Um, I am just sort of from the consumer space, uh, I'm personally shocked by how many devices. I mean, I bought these things. I know what (laughs) they can do. But uh, just when I sort of compare the number of computing devices that are traditional computers in my household compared to everything else that has an IP address, um, it is it is pretty remarkable that these things just uh, continue to proliferate. And I'm not like a home automation guy. I don't really want my front door being controlled by an app and that sort of thing. No, me neither. But, um, no. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you, you can see some of these new houses that are being built with a literal server closet. And you open up the server closet in the basement, and they have a full you know, 19-inch rack with, with a ton of, of devices in there
0: that are providing all the infrastructure for um, these smart homes.
1: Oh, and I yeah. would love
0: to have Coraline on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I would too. Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard enough for me not to get my kids to lose an, a physical house key, but I can't even imagine the ways that they would screw up like, you know, an app controlled door lock and how many other kids in my neighborhood would just be wandering into my house.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, the season 11 of the X-Files had an episode where Scully's house was a was a total home automation house. And it basically turned on her right. until um, she, I forget what, what she had to do to like, she had to, uh, oh, she had to tip a waiter at a fully automated restaurant and Mulder and Scully had left without paying a tip because their, their meals came out wrong. Um, so yeah, we have to be careful of oh watching machines turning
0: on us. Oh God. That's like those restaurants that are in like all the airports now, the one, like especially Newark, every, you can't even talk to a person. It's just an iPad, you know, and you swipe your credit card and order your food or whatever. It, it's very. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, it's completely you know dead tech. Like there's no human interaction whatsoever, <laughs> which is the point, I guess. But, you know. um, so Richard, you mentioned the the '90s, and I want to kind of go back a little bit because that's kind of where you got your start, and you know, and like a lot of other folks that are kind of in our age bracket got their start in security in, in through the military because that was one of the good places you could get training at the time. Um. How did you first get kind of interested in security? Was it your choice or did they kind of say you're going over here?
1: Oh, it was definitely my choice. Um, as, a, as a kid, I saw the movie War Games and yes. uh, it was still legal at that point to war dial your hometown. So right. after I saw War Games, I war dialed my hometown on my Commodore 64 and my 300 baud modem and found all the, the uh, systems I could find. I didn't break into any of them, but it was pretty cool having that list of everything to come back with a tone. And I apologize to the residents of Billerica who, in the in the mid '80s, got a call and a beep in the middle of the night and didn't know what was happening. <laughs> um, but I, you know, for a period of time in, in high school, I didn't do anything with computers. I was on the cross country and the track team. And uh, when I went to the Air Force Academy, we were issued the first 386 PCs with hard drives, and that was pretty cool. But there was no network and uh, nothing on the network was enabled until a few years later when they they wired all the rooms and we weren't even supposed to be on the network, but my friends and I bought some uh, BNC connector uh, ethernet cards. And we were the first people to play doom on the, the Academy <laughs> network, Just the four of us, had the whole whole school to ourselves. Um, and then once, once I, uh, I, I finished the Academy, finished grad school, uh, went to Intel school. I, I did uh, traditional intelligence for, for a while. And that slowly transformed into sort of information operations. And then uh, while I was stationed at the, Air Intelligence Agency, the clearly the most important or most interesting part of the building to me was the, the Air Force Computer Emergency Response Team. So I, I spent about nine months trying to figure out a way to get into that unit. And, uh, it's actually 20 years ago this month is when I started there. And uh, it's, wow. I've been in field ever since.
0: And th- those CERT teams, you know, the, the military was some of the first uh, organizations to stand those up. You know, the original CERT CC that came out of Carnegie Mellon. Um, were you were you there when they started that team or did you get there a little bit afterwards? I
1: got there a little bit after, um, the, the team was officially stood up. I want to say October 1st of 1993, and it was a direct result of the Morris worm of 88. Right. Uh, And, you know, the military moves a little slowly in some cases, so it took five years to, to create that unit. Um, and then we spent the next, um, basically the next four or five years, instrumenting all of the Air Force bases with uh, ASIM, the Automated Security Incident Measurement software, which uh, Todd Heberline developed, which is where NSM comes from. His his tool was called the Network Security Monitor, and it was NSM in, in the directory on the Solaris boxes. Wow. So by the time I got there, we had just wrapped up the deployment of the systems, and we were we were learning how to make good use of the data and to uh, essentially do incident detection response from San Antonio, Texas for the whole Air Force.
0: That's kind of fascinating. I mean, that, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, late 90s at that point, I suppose. Point. Um, what did incident response, you know, emergency incident response look like at that time? I mean, did you guys have the kind of, um, I mean, it's the military, so you must have had detailed plans and you know, documents that you work from, but what did it look like then uh, as compared to like the complex uh, system we have now?
1: Yeah, so back then uh, we had more of a network-centric approach because it was the only thing that we could scale to all of, the, all of the Air Force bases. So every Air Force base, every Air Force location of any type had an ASIM sensor watching the traffic. And there were two modes of analysis. There was real-time and batch. Batch was human review on a daily basis of all the connections into and out of every Air Force base. So imagine what that was like. I mean, we had dozens of people who would sit there and look at every connection. And because most of it was plain text, they were reading these connections. So uh, a Telnet connection, uh, the analysts got personally familiar with what would happen on these Telnet connections. And a lot of the most interesting intrusions were caught because an analyst would see a Telnet connection and say, hey, I know this system, that's not how he or she works, or why is this person doing these commands and so forth. Um, On the real-time side, it was more signature-based, and that was the team I I was in charge of for most of the time I was there. And that was your your traditional IDS alert of something. Um, And this is is where NSM came from. So uh, the traditional workflow would be something like uh, Batch would be looking at their connections if they found something they would pivot off of whatever, whatever they would use, like if it was a username that was logged into or a source of death IP address or, or whatever. Um, in real time, we would see an alert. We would generate uh, content, and we were capturing all content. So this is where the NSM idea came from of collect all PCAP, not just PCAP triggered by an alert. Uh, and then we had session data. So we had um, like bro logs, basically, but, but more at just level three, level four. So you could see all the other connections that were involved and then generate PCAP off of that. And so this whole idea of pivoting and threat hunting, this is stuff that we were doing back then. It just didn't have a name, uh, per se. It was just considered intrusion detection. Uh, And then as far as the incident response went, um, for the whole Air Force, we had a four-person incident response team. uh, And Bam Vischer was uh, on that team, the inventor of Squeal. Uh, Chad Renfro, who I think is the CISO at Fidelity now, he was the CISO for Bank of America for many years, Uh, he was on that team. Dustin Child, who I think he was at Microsoft for a while. I, I don't. I just saw he's going to be speaking at a conference recently. I don't know exactly where he's at now. Um, but it was a very, very, very small team who would fly out to an Air Force base if there was some issue that um, took more than we could handle uh, remotely from San Antonio.
0: Okay. So yeah, that a lot of what you just described that process reminds me a ton of you know, the cuckoo's egg in that whole story that Cliff Stoll wrote about, you know, in the nineties that kind of, you know, and he was doing it mostly on his own, but kind of that you would essentially call it threat hunting. Like he knew there was an adversary on that network who was coming in and out. And he, you know, kind of worked backwards over the period of months to kind of find who it was and where they were coming from and what they were trying to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the one, so I, I think Cliff Stoll invented the modern IR process. This, I, everything he does is something that you can relate to today. Um, the difference though, is that I think threat hunting, the implication is that you're already compromised and you're trying to find evidence of that. You make a hypothesis, you test it and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you you don't necessarily have to take a threat hunting approach if you're finding activity as it occurs. So uh, I worked for the longest time at the Afcert and uh, someone would publish uh, an O-day, or we would discover O-days in the course of doing our monitoring. Um, we had all sorts of methods of, of detecting O-days that are, you know, very very simple, but they worked back then. Um, and so we would see someone. Oh, they're going to start defacing a bunch of Air Force bases, and boom, it would it would we would catch the first one, and then we'd start to implement Air Force-wide blocks of the, the C2IP that the the guy was coming from or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so we there was plenty of stuff that we caught as it was happening. Um, but then there was that idea of hunting as well for for the you know the Russians or the Chinese who had already been in the network for a while.
0: Yeah, which to me sounds like a really fascinating uh, job description. I, I I can imagine it would be maddening uh, in a lot of ways, but it sounds to me like it would be really interesting and really a lot of fun for maybe a specific set period of time, and, and then you might lose your mind with it.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah well there were there are two very important uh, aha moments that I can remember in my early career. One was simply going to the app cert and seeing how a high performing uh, response team works, how you can you can find bad guys, you can deal with them, you can interrupt them before they accomplish their mission. Um, you can integrate classified information I mean all the things that we we want from a team today we were doing back then. the second big aha moment came when I worked at a government contractor and we were given uh, essentially offensive missions. And we were told uh, by this day, by this time, we need to deliver this sort of product against this sort of target. And we did on a regular basis. And that taught me that if you have a sufficiently skilled, motivated and resourced uh, team, you can basically accomplish anything. And it doesn't have to be a huge team, but you know, there's this, and that's one of the ideas for the, the million dollar black ad budget came from one of my blog posts from the 2000s, where I talk about this is how I structure a team to to develop exploits and gain access to just about any target and to maintain access. It, you know, with a little bit of inflation, it's probably a little bit more. And obviously, security inflation is a bit there. But um, those two, you know, see, seeing how defense works and then seeing how offense works were, were very important.
0: Yeah. I- it occurs to me that, I mean, and certainly not an original thought, but a lot of the people that are in the security industry now or, or getting into it in the last few years, you know, spend a lot of almost all their time probably on one side of that ball. You know, a lot of them are probably just doing defense because that's, you know, there's tons of jobs out there for that. And that's kind of what you're taught in at, at college. But there does seem to be a ton of value. A lot of the the smartest folks I know and the most effective have, have you know, done offensive security work like you just described, whether it was, you know, formal or, you know, whether it was just on their own, uh, you know, security research or something like that. Yeah. I,
1: so I don't want to put on any pretenses. I am not an offensive person. Uh, I remember I had a uh, one of my uh, consulting gigs at Foundstone uh, in the early days was to do a uh, an assessment of a customer. And I Oh, it was embarrassing. I really had a hard time with that, and that was—I guess—that was another aha moment. That um, you may see intruders, you know, carrying out different activities, and it looks—it looks easy when you're on the receiving end, um, and perhaps if you're doing sort of a broad, broad level attack where you're targeting a whole bunch of people, um, you're hoping that one of them falls for whatever trick you're trying to pull, or, or you know, one server out there is, is available. But if you're going after a single target um, with a specific configuration. That is very difficult. So mm-hmm. sort of the, the target attack versus the opportunistic attack. Uh, and that was something I was very cognizant of when, when we worked on the APT1 report at Mandiant. There was some initial language in there that was a little, uh, a little poked a little fun at the, at the, at the ch- uh, Chinese APT1 group about you know, how, the, how they were uh, making mistakes and so forth. And I changed that to say choices, <laughs> because I, I two things. One, I didn't want to embarrass them, and, and two, um, it's not you know, offense is is difficult. The, the people who are really good red teamers, uh, or, or who conduct offensive operations and who maintain their their anonymity and their opsec and and they're effective. That's a really tough job. So uh, you know, my hats off to them. The people who can carry that out, and especially who can do it for a long a long time and not get caught.
0: Absolutely. And that that is a kind of a level of stress that I don't know that I could handle mentally, honestly, you know, having to deal with all of that on a daily basis. I don't know. Um,
1: yeah. Now, having said that, they're they are typically not the best at defense. Um, <laughs> so there, there's many opportunities to hack back at those guys. Not that that's something I've done or I advocate, but um, you see plenty of cases where people who are really close to the top as far as. Uh, attacking or, or, you know, they are criminal actors or something like that. Um, they get owned by the simplest issues. Um, so it it makes it a little bit easier to figure out, um, who they are.
0: Oh, good. That makes me feel a little better. I don't, you know, I don't like people that are great at everything. That's no fun for anyone else. Um. (laughs) there's probably a few of those, but there, there probably are. I don't know if I've even met them. Yeah. Uh, so the APT one report you mentioned, I. That's kind of, I think that's the first one that I remember. Was that the first detailed APT report that came out?
1: Um, So Dimitri Alperovitch did his uh, Night Dragon reports with McAfee in... Yeah, right, right. I want to say about 2010. I can't remember. It was several years before. Um, I think think the reason the APT1 report got uh, more or sort of a bigger, bigger impact was it was tied to a building and reporters on the scene could visit the building and take footage and be chased away by guards. And it just looks so suspicious. So once we, we sort of crossed that divide from the digital into the physical, uh, it really, really had a, an effect that, w- I mean, we had a feeling it would be big in the, in the security world, but we did not think it would be big out, outside of, of the security
0: world. Yeah, I do remember that. I remember seeing, like, uh, photos and, like, yeah, video of people approaching the building. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I would not do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: no. I remember walking from the train station to the Mandiant headquarters in Alexandria and and just walking by the, the, the doors of different apartment buildings and such and seeing the New York Times, and right above the fold was APT1. I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is really cool.
0: <laughs> that is cool. Yeah, that's when you know you've done something, uh, you know, that's that's very cool that's a that's a moment right there that must have been neat yeah and and
1: that was the leadership team's objective was uh we felt like uh, our customers had been being compromised for years and years uh with i mean i won't say there, there was no concern on the part of the government but um if you remember back to that time People were scared even to say the Chinese were, were taking these actions. Oh, absolutely. There was a concern that if you, yeah, if you mentioned China and intrusions, you were somehow um, breaking a classification uh, guidance. So that was, I mean, that was a huge taboo back then. Um, so we felt like th- this is the group that everybody knows about. If we let the world, you know, we, we, we share what we know about it. You're really not uh, giving away too much. This Everyone knows who these guys are anyway. But, um, it would be useful for us to stand up and say, "Hey, this is not acceptable uh, and for a while that approach that approach worked until all the Snowden stuff came out that summer. Uh, but I think at the end in the end, it was a positive contribution
0: yeah, I do too, and I mean uh, you know especially the the kind of broad large scale investigation and the kind of details that were in that report. Um, I think led to a lot of other, you know, a lot of other companies are taking that kind of approach now and doing that kind of investigation, which in publishing the things that they're doing, people were doing that, as you mentioned, you know, at the time, they just weren't publishing it, you know, it was either used internally or sold to customers or things like that. Um, but, you know, that that kind of leads into the stuff we've seen recently with these, um, the Department of Justice indicting uh, some uh, North Korean citizens for, uh, a variety of hacks going all the way back to the Sony Pictures hack and the WannaCry worm and that kind of stuff um how difficult are those kind of large you know um you know years long investigations even if you know for example I I'm positive that the Department of Justice knew who they were looking at how difficult is it then to to gather the kind of forensic uh information and evidence that's that's needed for something like that even without the legal part of it just to kind of do the attribution part of it
1: so it it is a it is a massive undertaking to create a 179 page indictment um there, there's sort of two well there's maybe sort of three forms of documentation that have a, a a really positive effect his from a from a historian view and i'm i'm a uh, history major from, from the Air Force Academy, as well as poli-sci. Um, one of them is an indictment. So you can see, for example, in the, in the indictment of that one nor- gentleman from North Korea, the level of detail that they had to put in there uh, is, is quite remarkable. Um, the second documents that are useful are these threat intel reports that companies like Mandiant and CrowdStrike and others publish. Um, they show the standard that's expected from a, a private company. And then the third type of documentation that you get, and the, the quality on these varies, but sort of the in-depth book-level um, investigations of various activities. So Kim Zetter's book on Stuxnet is a, is a great example of that. I mean, that years from now, people will look back on that as sort of the you know, the work you want to read to figure out what Stuxnet was all about from many, many different perspectives. So to produce that level of 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 product, um, you know, there's a technical aspect. You have to understand what you're talking about. There's a collection aspect. Uh, you know, if you're gonna, if you're actually thinking that you're gonna go to court, it's not it, it's not like an intrusion response. You have to collect evidence with a certain uh, degree of care and um, uh, prevent evidence tampering and. I worked some cases that that ended up with criminal prosecutions and thankfully i never had to testify because that that's sort of like a never-ending problem in in itself Mm -hmm. but that that is a whole new level of complexity Uh, and then of course you have to balance all of the non-technical aspects to it the the diplomatic aspects and the psychological and uh so when you when you get an indictment like that it it's trite, but it really is the tip of the iceberg. There is so much work that's, that's taken place with, with lawyers and agents and investigators, both public and private. Um, there's coordination with the intel community to to be able to share certain information. Perhaps some of it is unclassified. Perhaps some of it was declassified for inclusion in the indictment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, perhaps it's based on classified information, but they can't say that, so they have to come up with an alternative uh, alternative case for how they can include that information. So yeah, it's a it's a massive undertaking. That's why you only see uh, a few of these per years. It's not something that, that can be created on a regular basis.
0: No. It, I mean, you mentioned it was 179 pages. I, I started reading through it the other day until I looked up at the top of the screen and realized how long it was. And I was like, oh God, <laughs> there's no way on earth I'm getting right. through this whole thing. <laughs> I'll just try and get to the relevant parts. But the, even just the beginning of it, the level of detail that they had, you know, with um, the traces of the e- various email accounts and you know where this this particular person worked and where he was educated and all that kind of stuff, they it was clear that there was years and years of work that went into that thing.
1: Yeah, it, it's kind of nice that we're at the point where you can produce that that level of analysis both inside the government and outside the government. Um, it shows that. The the analyst skills are valued by the law enforcement community, and that always wasn't the case. There was a time when if you didn't carry a gun, then you weren't you know you weren't necessarily considered a first class citizen. But mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, it that has has been great strides made at, at all levels of uh, law enforcement uh, community.
0: How much I mean, this may not be something that you know, but how much do uh, you know the intel community and the law enforcement community? Uh, worry about when they, when something like this comes out, what's going to happen to the folks that we have that are doing that same job?
1: I think the people who do the work, uh, they accept it as a risk, but they do worry about it. Uh, this is one of the concerns I've had about naming operators in other countries. It, it sets a precedent, uh, for other countries to name our operators. Now, uh, I think we're at the point where these other countries don't have the level of attribution that the United States government does. Um, That's mainly a function of SIGINT, I think. But uh, if they got to the point where they could do that level of attribution, we would not want our people to be named. Um, There have been cases, um, less public cases over time, where various FBI agents know that if they go to Russia, uh, they will be. you know, they'll be arrested for activities that they were involved in mm-hmm. um, in the, in basically in the capture of, of Russian nationals who did uh, different activities. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not, it, it, I think it's a net positive for the, to, to create these indictments, but it is a legitimate concern that we're setting a precedent for uh, naming our own, our own people.
0: Yeah. It, that's the thing that always occurs to me when, when I see these is, you know I'm, I'm pleased that we're able to do this kind of thing, but at the same time, you kind of worry for the you know the folks that we have doing offensive work that you know I, you know I don't think we're doing the kind of uh, you know wire fraud and uh, um, corporate espionage that that is alleged in that indictment, but you know the kind of offensive work that any nation is doing uh, you know it just it does put those people at kind of like a natural risk.
1: Yeah, I think I would feel more comfortable if it were more senior people. And I don't necessarily know the level of the gentleman in this latest indictment. But um, when you're a senior person, you're getting paid more. You have more responsibility. And it's sort of understood that this is this is what the job requires. If you're sort of lower down the the food, the food chain, um, you don't have that level of protection. Uh, I mean, even even a thing like physical protection, like uh, uh, I could see a top general or admiral having uh, having physical protection and, and surveillance on their house and these sorts of things that sort of come with having that high profile position. But you're not going to get that for the, the captain in the trenches or the uh, the NCO who's, who's working these jobs. Right.
0: Yeah. And also, I would imagine that these uh, the people in these indictments probably think that they're never going to actually be arrested and face prosecution because they probably won't be allowed to leave that country again.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it is something that, well, I guess. On the other hand, if I sort of put myself back into, you know, the type of person I was when I was twenty-seven, twenty-eight, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I would be like, "Yeah, let them come get me." You know, right. Whatever. <laughs> I, I probably would not even think in those terms. You know, you don't have don't have a family. Um, you're just a different person when you when you don't have those responsibilities.
0: That's a hundred percent true. Yep. All right. Well, Richard, thanks so much. This is great. Uh, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And it was a lot of fun uh, to catch up and, uh, and hear what you're up to these days. And uh, good luck with everything at CoreLight. I, I hope it goes well.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Dennis. It's been great talking to you and, uh, and great job on the podcast.
0: Thanks so much. Take care.